0: Good afternoon, warriors. This is your host, Chris, and before this podcast begins, I just wanted to touch on a couple of mental health subjects that I want to cover for the month of April. Um, so when this re- episode is recorded on April 16th, um, today is Project Semicolon. Each year on April 16th, our community celebrates World Semicolon Day by sharing our stories and tattoos. Remind those with mental illness and their supporters, you are not alone and your story is never over. Also, there is a couple other things I wanted to touch on for the month of April. And that is National Infertility Awareness Week is April 24th to the 30th. Um, the month of April is also National Autism Awareness Month. So whatever you can do to support um, the community of autism, uh, please do so. Donate, you know, share Share stories with others, with your experiences, with others that you know struggle with autism. And just be there for one another, guys. I hope you enjoy this episode. And remember, be gentle with yourselves. Okay. Good afternoon, Warriors, and welcome to another enlightening episode of the Mental Health Podcast, uh, Voice for the Voiceless. Today, we have a very special guest. She is the author of the book, Simply De-Escalate, and president in the North Carolina chapter of NAMI, um, which is also the National Alliance on Mental Illness, fellow warrior and mental health advocate Tiffany Herring. Welcome Tiffany.
1: Hey, Thanks Chris. I'm so excited to be here. I love the Facebook group. I'm loving the podcast and everything that you're doing so I'm really excited that you chose to include me.
0: I appreciate you so much. Uh, This book was probably one of the best books I've read in a while. Um, I did I myself did the crisis training and did the text line for a little bit so a lot of it was like kind of refreshing and then just like the little bits of you that you splashed in there was just terrific. I loved it. Thank you. Um, so today we're just going to do a little simple interview, you know, just kind of dissect the book without spoiling it for everybody. Um, so my first question for you is being a, a crisis intervention team coordinator, which is your official title, right? Um, what do you think is the most important part of your job?
1: Yeah, so my full-time job is training law enforcement and first responders on how to identify and intervene during mental health crises. So, and as you know, we'll get into a little bit. I come from a law enforcement family. So, you know, um, representing law enforcement has always been really important to me. And... You know, the, the reputation in a lot um, of agencies and just really in, in America with law enforcement is is not really good these days. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that we are addressing a lot of issues in our mental health care system with law enforcement, and that can sometimes not end so well. Um, so you know, officers really need to wear a bunch of different hats, right? So I think just being able to, and, and they're afraid a lot of times, you know, everybody's afraid of what they don't understand.
0: Right. So I
1: think a lot of times, whenever law enforcement are dealing with people who are suicidal, or maybe they're experiencing psychosis, right? Maybe they're, they're hearing voices or, um, you know, having some type of delusional thought and things just aren't really making sense. It's, it's scary, right? Um, so just, I think, really breaking that stigma, a lot of times um, in this 40-hour training, and it is a very full week, um, but really breaking it down and saying, look, this is what's going on. This is a mental disorder. It's happening in the brain, just like any other disorder. And we can, if we can recognize it and know how to respond, those situations are going to end so much more safely without lawsuits, without people getting hurt, without people going to jail. Um, So there are a lot of reasons why, you know, law enforcement agencies really need to get on board with the crisis intervention team training. And they are, we're seeing, you know, a lot more trainings like this around the country, but especially now with everything that we're seeing going on, you know, in America, it's more important now than ever.
0: Right. Um, For me, I feel like the resources are just so hard to come across for so many people because you know you got the health care issues and you know just just for somebody to be able to work with law enforcement I think is is super huge because I know like there is a stigma with mental health there's that stigma with you know law enforcement you know there's there's that red area of oh it's a police officer I don't want your help kind of thing so mm-hmm. it's great to see somebody like yourself work with them and you know break the stigma of mental health. Yeah. Um, So the 40-hour training that you coordinate throughout law enforcement and first responders, um, what do these courses entail of and do you work with any kids?
1: Okay, well, it's a very full week. So we usually start the week off just talking about, we do like a mental health 101 where we're going to cover a lot of the basics, depression, anxiety, ADHD, OCD. Uh, bipolar disorder. We do learn a lot about, um, and a lot of different agencies across the United States are now using mobile crisis teams. Um, So learning about the local mobile crisis um, service that might be local. We talk about substance use. We talk about intellectual and developmental disabilities. We talk about dementia, which isn't necessarily a mental illness, but it is affecting the brain. So you are gonna see behaviors as a result of that. So really anything that's affecting the brain how to, again, identify what's going on and what are the things that I need to say and do with a person who's living with this to help keep them calm and get them to the help that they need. And that's where the resources are really important too. So having different service agencies come in and say, hey, this is our agency, this is what we have to offer. And when law enforcement knows those resources, they can inspire hope in that moment when they are working with that individual. And they're saying, you know, when someone's saying, you know, I don't know if I want to be here anymore, I'm feeling suicidal. And that officer's like, oh, well, have you tried the suicide prevention, you know, hotline? Have you tried the local mobile crisis team? Have you tried that? You know, just being able to offer some of those things can inspire that hope. We, and I know we'll talk about hope here, you know, later on, but hope is so important. Um, so just being able to give individuals hope in that moment. Um- But yeah, so we also do role play. We do a lot of um, we'll have someone come in and they will get a scenario and they actually have to, you know uh, portray those symptoms and what's happening. and that officer will come in and try to de-escalate that situation. And if they're saying and doing the right things, Will be calm if they're saying some trigger words. We're going to escalate, and so that's really fun. And I think the officers are usually the most nervous for that, um,
0: right. but I
1: think they they learn the most with just like hands-on experience. I know I really learn by hands-on experience. As far as working with kids, um, I have just just with the book, I have um, started to kind of dip my toe in the water with with kids. I am trying to figure out a way to take this information and convert it into like a children's book or something, because like I said, listening, empathy, all of those things are really important. So that's something that I'm kind of tossing that idea around uh, with now. And, you know, I did get an opportunity to go speak with some kids some, uh, at a middle school a few weeks ago. And, you know, not only did we talk about these skills, but we did have that conversation of, you know, if something was wrong, if you were going through something, who could you go to? Right. And, you know, oh, I can go to my teachers. I can go to my guidance counselor. You know, someone say, oh, I don't like the guidance counselor. I wouldn't go to her. I would go to. Right. Right. And so at the end of that conversation, they all kind of went back to class and there's one little girl kind of hanging around and she comes up to me and she's like, well, you know, what if what if you do want to tell an adult, but you're afraid that, you know, they might call child Child protective services, which is automatically like red flag, like. What's going on with this child? So being able to to connect her with someone to speak with, uh, making her feel safe and finding out, you know, a lot of things that were happening, you know, that should not be happening in this little girl's life. But the fact that I was there, I presented this information and she felt safe enough because of that conversation. These are conversations that need to be had. And I know we sometimes think that this is really adult content, but children become adults. And these are all things that they need to know now. So I definitely want to uh, work a lot more with kids in the future.
0: I absolutely look forward to that day because I, I I'm telling you, the, the information that you put in this book alone. Uh, I mean, for me growing up, you know, the resources weren't available when we were growing up. You know, it was heavily stigmatized, where it's like, oh well, if you're depressed, here's some medicine, or if you're suicidal, you're gonna get locked up and get Baker acted. And that's just something that. I myself have experienced not speaking out and not being able to tell people because you know there's that stigma of uh if you have any mental illness you're quote-unquote crazy according to society right just for the fact that you're wanting to work with those kids I I feel like kids people underestimate kids you know I definitely feel like they know a lot more than we think
1: (laughs) they do (laughs) they're little sponges they take in everything
0: and for a little kid in eastern middle school right Mm -hmm. for for a little girl in middle school to be like i'm scared to tell anybody what's going on in my life that's definitely a red flag but you know i'm glad uh glad you have aspirations to you know want to work with kids because i think that's incredible thank you um So how long have you been working with NAMI and what inspired you to volunteer, advocate for them?
1: Yeah, so... um... I, I learned about NAMI through CIT training, honestly. Um, uh, we always have usually a NAMI panel come into CIT training where we'll have people with lived experience share a little bit about their story. And that's always really important too, because law enforcement sees everyone at their worst, right? So seeing people in recovery and and recognizing that, oh my gosh, people do get better. You know, they need that because sometimes they are so pessimistic because, you know, they might take someone to the hospital or they might take someone to jail and, and, and you know, however that that works out, they usually don't know, you know, how that situation ends, or if that person does get help or does get better. So that's really important. Um, I was involved with NAMI for about two years here locally. And then the president decided that um, the president and vice president actually decided they were going to step down and they needed someone to kind of fill in that role. And I was kind of in the corner like, okay, who's going to volunteer for this? (laughs) And then finally, someone was like, Tiffany, you'd be great. And I'm like, okay, but I love it because NAMI and Um, CIT go hand in hand and um, for those of you who don't know about NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, it's a local um, uh, grassroots agency we're supported to just um, supporting people living with mental illness as well as their uh, caregivers for those living with mental illness. Um, and, and there's still, it's hard to get people to these meetings too, Chris, I'll tell you, because just that hearing that, Oh, Alliance on mental illness. And I'm going to go to a meeting, like how am I, who, what are, who, what are these people going to like look like? And what are they going (laughs) to think of me? And, and you go there and you're like, Oh, wow, these are just people. These are just people. And, you know, it's really just getting people in the door to some of these meetings, but you know, we have support groups for, you know, um, alcohol and and substance use disorder, you know what I mean? We need support groups for mental health just as much. And people feel so much better when they come to these meetings. We have peer support meetings um, for individuals with lived experience like myself. I'll share a little bit about that with you as well. And then we also have a family support group um, with caregivers who uh, will come in, because if you love someone with mental illness, that can be very challenging. You know, your mental health is just as important. And I should mention, too, that with CIT training, we really preach a lot of self-care as well. Um, you know, law enforcement especially is at a higher rate of suicide. So when they come to training and we talk about mental health, sometimes it's like, oh, well, that's those people over there. Like, I'm, But they're not, not really having that understanding of, like, I am even more likely because I'm a law enforcement officer to have depression or anxiety or substance use disorder or become suicidal you know they have higher rates of suicide so it's not just them it's us and the the more that we realize that we're more similar <laughs> then we are different. You know, that that's really that's really what hits at home. Um, but I, I love NAMI. I love what we do. I would love to get, you know, more people involved. And if you have a NAMI chapter, you know, or if you want to just go to um, NAMI.org and try to find a local chapter, um, you know, it's, it's, we're just people. We're just people looking for like-minded people who listen. Because sometimes when you have a mental health uh, issue, it, it's hard to, to find people who listen, you know, sometimes you're like, like, Oh, I have anxiety. And they're like, okay. Well, what does that mean? Or they're like, Oh, sure. Anxiety. Everybody has anxiety these days. And I'm like, no, but that means something different for me. And, and, you know, and the more you get like the eye rolls or the, you know, the people kind of dismissing you or just like, well, just, you know, suck it up, (laughs) you know, the more, the more you start to close off. So, you know, just having that outlet and that place to go is so important. So definitely, if, if you um, are interested in something like that, find your local NAMI chapter because that help is really important. It, it I know it does a lot for me yeah. to just get it out sometimes. Right.
0: I love the distinction that you made between uh, the law enforcement and, you know, the that's over there, that's them people. I, I love how you just kind of brought it together and you're like that's all of us and yeah. we're all in this together because I feel like as a society, it's just so important to remind everybody that you know they're not alone and that we're all in this fight together you know whether it's somebody who has access to all the resources that are available or not and it's so important to constantly like chirp to in everybody's ear be like listen like I'm going through what you're going through maybe and not to the extent that you are but I'm still going through it and obviously that's met with a lot of dismissive Uh, responses suck it up. is probably my favorite one.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And, and, you know, you don't have to know, um, or, or have experienced exactly what that person's going through. Right. I mean, when we talk about empathy, you know, I might not have, have been through your exact situation, but I still feel I'm still a person I have feelings. So I can relate to feeling scared or fear or shame or embarrassment or guilt, you know, all of those things. I might not be able to say, I understand your situation, but I can understand how you being in this situation can be very, you know, difficult for you because I've felt that way before too. Right. And then, you know, listening, listening to each other. So important.
0: Absolutely. Um, Your book, you mentioned your father was in law enforcement. Uh, Did he ever take you on any ride-alongs?
1: Yeah. It's so funny. I shared this, this old like Polaroid photo in training. Um, it was like, take your daughter to work day, 1998 or something like that. <laughs> and it's just like me sitting in the police station. And, and, you know, back in those days, it was just, it was completely different, right? Like there, there's like a little ashtray sitting there, like where they were just <laughs> in there smoking and, you know, doing their thing. But uh, yeah, I've, I've done ride alongs and I really think, you know, cause, cause I, I have, social anxiety, I have, I've dealt with generalized anxiety disorder, certainly my, my whole life, um, I wasn't diagnosed until I was 23. Um, and after I had a, a nervous breakdown, but when I really step back and look at it, I can remember being in the third or fourth grade and asking my mom to take me to the ER because my stomach hurt so bad, you know, oh, my st- and I ha- I've had, you know, gastrointestinal intestinal issues and stomach issues my entire life not knowing that they call the stomach the second brain mm-hmm. so a lot of times whenever you have gastrointestinal things going on sometimes that's your brain you know is it and your stomach kind of communicating you know like when you're nervous about something and you think about it and you kind of get that like boom like that that dip in your stomach you know so um uh I feel like I've, I've had this my whole life and and having that social anxiety and watching my dad talk to people you know I feel like that was that kind of taught me how to cope with it you know what I mean because I'm very introverted and a lot of people are like no way and I'm like I do (laughs) I mean I can turn it on but it took a lot for me to be able to turn it on you know and at the end of the day I really like to recharge you know by myself so he did taught me teach me a lot we did do a lot of um we did do a lot of ride, ride-alongs and things like that. And I've even done some ride-alongs as an adult too. Um, but it, it's it's really interesting because again, that law enforcement has to wear so many different hats and they have to be the jack of all trades. You know, going from, you know, a, a robbery in progress to, you know, a, a welfare check. You know, those are gonna have two completely different responses. And so to go, f- you know, from one to the other is sometimes difficult to, to transition. Um, but again, it, it's something that, they have to do. Unfortunately, uh, you know, with the institutionalization, you know, and and a, a lack of places for individuals to go, shutting down, you know, state-run institutions. We're addressing this issue yeah. with the criminal justice system, and so they're seeing it so much more and the the calls have increased I mean and I think I think we've always had I mean even whenever I I, in the in late 90s early 2000s riding along with my dad I mean we saw mental illness but we just really didn't recognize it for what it is you know what I mean like like we my dad had a woman who um experience psychosis. And she would always say, you know, well, there's these ghosts in my house and there's people, there's people in my attic, you know, and it's, and now we would say, okay, well, I, I believe that's what you're experiencing. You know, it sounds like we need to get you some help. You know, how, do you take medication? You know, back in those days, you know, dad would have went in there and said, okay, Hey, um, ghosts. <laughs> hey, can you get out of the house and leave this nice lady alone? You know what I mean? But you're not addressing the core right. of the issue. So I think now that we are able to recognize it and, and know what it looks like we can better respond to it too
0: right um <laughs> that, that's, the, the ghost <laughs> thing kills me that's that's a great story um but just to follow up that question um at what point did you know that you wanted to start helping people
1: you know i, I was trying to think on this one this question and honestly i, I just It's always been who I am. I mean, I was born this way, baby. I don't know. (laughs) I just, I've always just, if there was a cause that, that I felt like it made sense, I wanted, I wanted to get behind it. And I've always been, I've always been a very intuitive person. Um, I've, I've always kind of Really been able to distinguish what's right and wrong, and I've kind of just stuck with that as opposed to going along with the crowd because that can sometimes be very easily to do. I'm I'm not very easily influenced, um, <laughs> but I feel like I feel like I I am passionate and and I um, you know can influence other people in a good way. Um, just with especially just uh, de de escalation and and these skills and communication is really what I'm all about. I just feel like if we could learn to communicate better and talk to one another and try to build an understanding, that's really what it's all about. So uh, that that's really the service that I want to provide to people from here on out is just letting them know that like, this isn't something we need to hide in shame for anymore. And we can understand each other if we just take the time to listen.
0: Absolutely. I feel like, you know, it's, it's such a great feeling when that passion is just like such a heavy weight in what you do, because there's just, there's something that I always, you know, stress in every podcast that I do. And it's, you know, there's so many resources out there, but there, there are even less uh, the amount of people that want to help. They just be like, Oh, well, let me just write your prescription or try doing this. Like it's like, they almost don't listen. So Mm -hmm. to hear somebody uh, like yourself be so passionate about, what you do and wanting to provide those resources for people it's very inspiring because i feel like a lot of people when they look at this you know this movement for mental health they just kind of feel like yeah well it's just a hashtag or yeah well the therapist is just they're collecting a check and I've, I've heard all those things and it's heartbreaking but yeah it's it's definitely great to hear somebody that wants to actually help people. Because, you know, that's why I made the the group that I made, you know, it's... Yeah. Go ahead.
1: Well, well it, it's just, you know, it took me a long time to figure out what I was passionate about, you know, how, how everything that I wanted to do was going to kind of come together in a way that I could help people. But you you know, when you're on the right track, you know what I mean? Like, like with you and your podcast, you know, and and there's always going to be people who step back and like, well, why is he doing that? Well, who did she (laughs) think she is? You know what (laughs) I mean? And and you can, if you, if you can let, if you let those voices get to you, it can, it can really push you away. But I know that what I'm doing is important and I'm passionate about it. So no matter what, you know, and, and, and the little little like God signs, right? Like, like you inviting me on a podcast, or, you know, the the woman inviting me to talk to those kids a few weeks ago, or, you know, someone giving me a, a shout out on their Facebook and posting about my book, you know, all of those little things that you're like, okay, this is a sign that I'm on the right track. Yeah, and, and, and you just have to, you just have to go with it. And, right. and it makes, you know, it makes me happy. So if I, I could get into all the negative as to, you know, why I shouldn't do it, but right. honestly, the only reason why I shouldn't do it would be because of what other people think, yeah. you know? So, and, and that, that's really hard whenever you're trying to, you know, make a difference is, you know, sometimes you do get, get those people on the sidelines that, that, that aren't in the arena, as some might say, who are just watching and, and you're trying to make a difference and, but not everybody has that passion. Not everybody has passion in a fire like this or something that, and, and really, I think that they're that way because they haven't found their passion or right. haven't found their purpose yet. Um, so it's so much easier to, to tear others down along the way to, to feel bigger. But the more that you support each other, you know, you support me, I support you. That's what it's all about. You know, the more that we can try to raise it and lift each other up, mm-hmm. the more we're going to level up as well. Right.
0: Right. Right. Um, Okay, Uh, you mentioned four agreements as a communication blueprint to live by. Um, We need to be impeccable with our words, don't take anything personally, don't make assumptions, and always do your best. Are these mentioned in any of your trainings?
1: So, Have you read the four agreements, Chris? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, yeah, that this was like life changing when I read the four agreements. And that was years ago. That was before I even really got into the CIT training. And when I started getting into CIT training, I was like, Oh, my gosh, this is like the four agreements. This is what we're teaching. You know, we want people to be impeccable with their words, everything they say or do in that moment matters. You know, sometimes it is, you know, funny when a law enforcement gets on a call, and they see something and they're like, Oh, I want to make this sarcastic remark, or Oh, I have this zinger, you know, but mm-hmm. it, is it going to help the situation. Right. You know, um, there, like, there's a big difference between asking versus telling, right? If I'm like, "Hey, Chris, come here and sit down," you're gonna be like, "I don't really like the way she said that." But if I'm <laughs> like, "Hey, hey, Chris, you want to come over here and having a seat for me?" You know what I mean? I just said the same thing, but the way I said it, I put it the ball in your court and I made it your choice. So you're going to be more likely to go along. So being impeccable with our words, words matter. And the way we say them, everything that, ha- even our nonverbals, right? Um, looking at your watch or looking at your phone or, you know, rolling your eyes, that communicates so much too that, okay, this person really doesn't want to listen to me. So words are so important. Don't take, not taking anything personally. I don't know if I, I think I did mention this in the book with the, the woman I had to dress out because I, I worked in, in jail in and yeah. jails and prisons for quite some time. But this this lady was calling me everything but a white woman. I swear to you, she was cursing me up and down and standing back. And it could if I was insecure, you know, if I took it personally, I could have said, you know, what, what who do you think? You're, you know, slammed, what does that look like? I'm slamming her on the ground Then I'm trying to put like an orange onesie on a grown woman. You know what I mean? Why? I don't want to do that. Yeah. You know, I would rather use my words in a way that are going to make you comply. It's it's like that that um, you know that verbal judo, the, those Jedi mind tricks that I'm talking <laughs> about. Like you just change your words yeah. and, and you get a completely different response. Um, not making assumptions. We can sometimes make a lot of assumptions. Um, and then always doing your best. That's another thing I always really hit home with with the CIT officers is. You know, if you go into a situation, you're de escalating with a negative mindset, and you're like, this isn't going to end well. Okay, we're probably going to have to take this person to the hospital. This is probably going to be an involuntary, you know what I mean? If you go in with that mindset, that's usually what's going to happen. You will manifest that. So go in positive. I'm going to help this person. Okay, uh, we, we've, we've tried this. You know, I, I've been on this call before, but you know what? We're going to try this this time. You know, just really having a, a positive mindset going into these situations, like, I am going to help this person. And a lot of times, I'd say 98% of the time when you go into it with a positive attitude, it's going to end well, right? just because of the energy that you were putting
0: into it. Yeah. Um, for me, I, I always feel like words are super important how you word everything. So whenever I have my you know, monthly healing sessions and you know we're talking about whatever's been going on since last time I saw her, um, I always correct myself when I say the word problem and I fix it with struggles i I'm like, you know, it just sounds yeah. so like more negative than it really is to say problem than it is to say struggle. Yeah. So whenever somebody reaches out to me about what's going on and it's just like, you know, the way you word things to whatever situation that you're in is super important because anything you can say can come off sarcastic. Anything you can say comes off aggressive. But if, like you said, if you go in there with a positive mindset, you don't make assumptions on the situation, you just. Try and use whatever experience that that you have and try to input it with the situation you're trying to address. It makes things so much easier, especially with mental health stuff. I mean, I can't even begin to tell you how many conversations I've had with family members that I consider, you know, just not great family members. And the situation just ended up being a lot calmer than it was five, six years ago when my brain wasn't self-aware of all the things that were going on around me. So I absolutely love the four agreements. I think it's a, a brilliant blueprint. And I, I think it's probably one of the coolest aspects that you added in there because it's important for everybody to hear.
1: Yeah, I, I had someone, uh, it was actually Major Sam Cochran, who um, was Developed CIT training in Memphis Tennessee back in 1987 he was you know at the forefront of that and so I was talking to him a little bit about my book and what I was doing and, and he did say well you know there's no such thing as new de-escalation and I said well yeah but how you present it right um I could there's a lot of people that teach de-escalation but the way I teach it the way someone else teaches it what I bring to the table the four agreements um the high conflict people, self, um, self self-care, you know what I mean? I don't think a lot of people really put de-escalation and self-care together, but if you want to be good at de-escalating someone, you have to be in a healthy headspace.
0: Absolutely. (laughs) I I definitely (laughs) felt like that was super important for me with, with the text line when I was doing that. Cause obviously, as you know, working with the crisis hotlines and and things of that nature, you can't go in there, you know, not, I'm like one hour of sleep or just not ready for what's going to come because uh, being in a crisis situation and trying to help somebody is tremendously important that you're a hundred percent there. You can't be yeah. like 90%. You gotta be.
1: Absolutely. Especially when you're working with people, you know what I mean? I want, if, if I'm going for help, you know, I want to have someone's full attention. If they're distracted, if they're tired, if they're, you know, kind of paying attention over here. Like I said, on their phone, they look distracted. You right. know, I, I'm not going to feel like I can open up to you. And right. that's really what it's all about is getting this person to open up. Let's talk, let's communicate and let's get this figured out.
0: Absolutely. Um, one of the <laughs> most important parts of de-escalation that I've noticed was mentioned quite a bit was building report. Is there a right or wrong way to build report with somebody?
1: So, I mean, I always say... <laughs> use what you got. I I say it's like fishing. You know what I mean? You're kind of going to like throw a line out and see what sticks. So, you know, you're kind of like, well, what is this? Oh, well, this is a nice dog. You know, what's your dog's name? You know? Oh yeah, my dog. You know, this might be the only thing that's keeping this person alive if they're suicidal. Maybe it, maybe it is this dog. And and if you kind of sense that, okay, well, what's your dog's name? How old is he? What kind of dog is it? You know, I have a dog too, you know, he, he's, he's a lot smaller than this. Again, you know, let's talk about dogs. Let's, let's find some common ground here. Um, now, if you are building rapport, it's important to not talk too much about yourself. Now, if you've, if you've experienced a loss and I've experienced a loss, I can uh, relate to you by, or, and empathize with you by saying, you know, hey, I, I've, I've lost my grandparent before too. That must be really hard. But then I want to know about you. I want to know, well, where, where was your grandfather? Was he here? You know, was he in Florida? Did he live in another state? Did you get to see him a lot? You know, what did you guys do for fun? You know, letting, letting you talk about your grandfather and then maybe experience some of those memories. You know what I mean? That's really what's going to help you as opposed to me just over here. Like, oh, well, you know, I was really close with my grandfather when he passed, you know, he used to have these grapevines in his backyard. We used to go out there and he had horses and now you're like, wait a minute, Tiffany, like I'm the one that had the loss. We're not talking about your grandfather. So I just think whenever it comes to building rapport, you just want to make sure that you're constantly putting um, the conversation back on that person, asking open-ended questions, because I mean, how many times have you just talked to someone? And I mean, I have, friends that call me, I have my, I have two, two, of my two best girlfriends from, from back home and they're my go-to if something is wrong and they, they're, I'm their go-to and they'll call me and they'll be, you know, venting about something and, and I'm, you know, what, <laughs> what did, right. You're trying to like interrupt the whole time and, and you're, and then I have to be like, Tiffany, shut up. Like, let just let them talk, you know, cause sometimes we just want to jump in, but how much better do you feel when you've just vented and got it all out? And sometimes you're like, oh, well, thanks. you know, you made me feel so much better. Thank you for your advice. And you're like, I didn't give you any advice. I just sat here and said, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. Like those minimal encouragers, right? That's all you really need to do a lot of times in that moment is just making the eye contact, shaking your head, let that person know, hey, I'm still here. I'm following you. And sometimes, you know, you might be talking and you stop. And instead of me immediately coming with a follow-up question, I pause for like four or five more seconds and then you might say, oh, and then also, so I get more to the story because you've had that four or five minutes, four or five seconds to kind of reflect. And in that reflection, you've discovered something else that you want to say. Right. So again, it's just kind of listening. We have two ears and one mouth. We want to be listening more than we talk and just putting those, you know, putting it back on that person to really be able to get it all out.
0: I feel like the trickiest part um, for for a lot of people when building rapport with somebody is that comparison um, struggle that I feel like everybody has. It's just like, I broke my leg. Yeah, I broke my leg last month and I also broke my back leg arm and, and whatnot. It's it's so hard to to talk to some people because you know they're so bullheaded and just like they want to do nothing but make it a competition. And I'm sure you've experienced that. I know I definitely have. Um, so that I think that's one of the biggest reasons I I was seeing if there was a wrong way to build it because i feel like that
1: so so this is interesting there's actually um there's a sociologist by the name of charles derber and he calls this conversational narcissism Mm -hmm. and now we we don't like that word narcissism right but (laughs) this is something that we all do we can all be narcissistic from time to time so conversational narcissism like if you and i were just going to go to lunch right we're getting to know each other we're going to find our common interests you know what i mean you're going to say oh i you know I like horses. And I'm like, oh, you know what? I really like horses, too. Um, well, well, what was your horse name? Oh, I had this kind of, you know what I mean? We're going to kind of be going back and forth because we're, we're playing off of each other and we're learning about each other. But whenever you're working with someone in a crisis situation, this is no longer a conversation. This is de-escalation. So I need to put it on you. I need to let you talk and I need to listen. And all of those, you know, those feelings to want to just stop in like oh I have something to say well you know sometimes you have to consciously stop yourself and say let me just listen let me just let this person get it out because that's what this is really all about in de-escalation is what does this person have to say because they're the one that's struggling and needs help right
0: now right right yeah um that's definitely that that word's a a buzzword for so many people narcissism uh it's something that I feel like is one of the hardest uh, parts of de-escalation is dealing with a narcissist in a crisis because are they telling me the whole story are they telling me what they want me to hear like you know how do I help this person without putting myself in a in a poor uh, mental health state um that's a it's a great distinction and it's something uh I feel like a lot of people definitely needed to hear um One very important part of your book that really stood out to me, uh, you mentioned most people listen to just respond and not try and understand. Why do you think that is?
1: Um, again, because we're human, because, you know, we just really want to relate to each other. You know, a lot of times, whenever I am talking about me, I, I, I might think that I'm helping you, you know, when I'm really not, um, And sometimes it can feel like we're trying to one-up each other. I think you kind of mentioned something similar to that. Like, oh, well, you might have this bad, but let me tell you about this. But, you know, a a crisis is is self-defined, right? So a crisis to you, it might not be a crisis to me. You know, my breaking point, you know, my threshold might be a little higher than yours. We're all different. We're all going to respond to different situations differently based on our experiences. Um, So... I'm sorry, I have, I have like five, this is, this is my anxiety, like five things lying in my head right now. And I'm like, uh, 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 overload. Um, what was our question? Come back to our question.
0: Um, so it was, uh, just asking why, why do you think people, uh, listen just to respond instead of trying to understand each other?
1: Yeah. Um, it, it just comes down to that again, that just conversational narcissism and that again, it, it, it isn't, Purpose. It isn't on purpose, Um, but it still it just happens from time to time. It takes it takes these de-escalation skills. Like I tell these officers, you can come here for the whole week, um, but if you don't practice this, you're going to lose it. You know, so it really does take a conscious effort to take a step back and say, okay, I need to put the attention on this person and be listening a lot more. Right.
0: Do you feel like uh, social media has that influence on a lot of people why? They don't try to understand what somebody's going through. They just go in there for the like and just keep scrolling kind of situation.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think social, I mean, social media is so great, right? But it also can can really separate us in a lot of ways too. a lot of, you know, but but also, I think doing what's comfortable for this for for the other person, if the other person is going to be, you know, more comfortable communicating on on social media, you know, I'm gonna do what feels more comfortable to you. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I mean, it just it all comes down to that communication. It really does. And 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 the way I communicate, the way you communicate, you know, we have obviously the the suicide prevention hotline, but we also can text there, right? Because some people are gonna to want to text more than they're gonna to want to talk on the phone. So, but getting that help is important, regardless of how you want it. And the fact that there are so many options. You know, you don't even have to go to a therapist in person. You can see somebody, right. you know, virtually now. Some people love that, you know, the, especially <laughs> the ones with social anxiety like myself. I'm like, oh, cool. Let's do this Zoom. <laughs> but, um, you know, there are some people who are like, I need that connection. I need to be face to face with this person. I want them to be local. I want to go to their office. And that's fine, too. So really just whatever is working for the person.
0: Just the kind of like off the cuff question uh, that I didn't have written down, but Do you feel um, it's important to adjust to somebody's communication style when you're de-escalating?
1: Yeah, really important. I I know that um, you had mentioned um, autism in one of these questions. You know, obviously that person's going to need to be Um, spoken to a little bit differently. And depending on, right, autism is a spectrum. So you may have people who are completely nonverbal, you may have some individuals who know sign language, Um, you may, you know, talk to someone nonverbal, trying to get their phone number, and they can't tell you. But if you hand them your cell phone, they're able to punch their phone number in like that. So everybody communicates differently. And we do have to adjust our tactic. Now, one thing I say is, especially with children, sometimes we tend to talk down to -hmm. children. but really we have to, we have to show them that respect, you know what I mean? In order for them to feel confident, that's like with, um, giving options, you know, even to kids, um, if you have a a small child and it's snack time and you're like, Hey, um, what do you want for snack? And they say, Oh, I want ice cream. And you're like, Oh, well you can't have ice cream. And then they're mad. Right. And they're stomping their feet. Well, you just asked me what I wanted. And I said, ice cream as opposed to, okay, it's snack time. Do you want, you know, um, some apples and peanut butter or do you want some celery and cream cheese you know what I mean giving them options putting the ball in their court and letting them say okay I want apples and peanut butter you know they were able to make that choice and now they're feeling more confident because you put the ball in their court you weren't telling them to do something you asked them to do something and you kind of bypass that whole tantrum from (laughs) <laughs> you know what do you want because it's more narrowed down and specific. So again it's just everything that you say and do in those situations are going to be really important.
0: Yeah that that language to just anybody is so important whenever you're giving them options I feel like is very helpful. Uh actually that's one of my favorite parts of the book when you said uh you know giving some of the options versus what do you want kind of thing like yeah. I, I always think of uh you know that the joke uh, meme with uh the notebook when it's like what do you want when you're asking somebody for dinner
1: and yeah
0: <laughs> when you're giving somebody an option it just makes things so much uh you know the conversation's a lot smoother
1: yeah and i mean well, if we're talking about a mental health crisis you know and, and and law enforcement has a lot of leverage right so and and you never want to use um jail as a threat right so i wouldn't want to say oh well you need to go um you need to see the mobile crisis team or else you're going to go to jail which one would you you know it's then that sounds threatening right so you know maybe again just word it a little differently well technically you are trespassing and there is you know a a crime here but we really want to get you help today so what i'd like for you to do is see the mobile crisis team which one do you think is going to be best for you you know and it's all just in the presentation
0: i love that i love that that's incredible um Throughout every chapter I've read, I feel self-awareness should be number one in terms of addressing someone in crisis than just in life, really. Do you feel that self-awareness can help someone uh, essentially avoid reaching crisis?
1: I think that's really what it's all about. Yeah, I mean, being self-care is self-aware, you know, Um, and just, again, a little bit more about myself and my history. You know, I had a, a nervous breakdown at work when I was 20... 25 years old. I was very young. I was working shift work. I was working from 7 p.m. till 7 a.m. Inside of a jail. I would get off at 7 a.m. I would go to an 8 a.m. class at ECU's campus. I would stay there till three in the afternoon, maybe go home and sleep a little bit. Um, I really didn't sleep a whole lot. I've always had alarm anxiety. Um, You know, I'm afraid I'm going to sleep through an alarm and not make it so I never really fall asleep. I also have insomnia where, you know, I might, if I fall asleep, I'm going to wake up at one o'clock in the morning, and then I'm going to sit there for the next three or four hours trying to fall asleep because my brain's like, oh, it's time to wake up now. And my body's like, no, I need this sleep. So when I, when I had that nervous breakdown, you know, I had to learn a lot about myself Mm -hmm. and I now know. The hours of sleep that I need a night to function. I know that, and I was on um, so many medications, uh, Ambien, Tramadol, Flexeril, Xanax. I mean, just a variety of medications that I was getting just to function. And when I left that environment, when I was able to get sleep at night, when I was able, it, you know, really for me, it was addressing my insomnia mm. uh, because I had been On different types of anxiety medications throughout my life, but I wasn't sleeping. Mm. So I finally saw a provider that listened to me, which is also very important because we have so many doctors that you go and you sit down and they're like, oh, well, you need this. Okay, here you go. Have a nice day. Like, no, I want you to just listen to me. So now that I have a, a provider that actually sits down for 15 or 20 minutes and is just like, Tiffany, how are you doing? How's life? How's your husband? You know, that's really important too. And so she said, you know, I think that if we could address sleep, for you. You might be less anxious throughout the day. I don't know. We can still consider some type of medication for anxiety, but let's try to get you sleeping. And so that was probably about two or three years ago. And honestly, since I sleep at night, I am less anxious throughout the day. Right. Now, That's not to say that I might not. I'm also very happy. I just got married recently. You know, I'm kind of still in the honeymoon stage. Thank you. Uh, you know, work's going good. So I'm really happy, you know, but that's not to say that life's full of peaks and valleys, right? right. There might come a day where I'm down in that valley and I'm going to go to my doctor and say, hey, you know what? I'm feeling anxiety again, you know, maybe, and I I have experienced one depression depressive episode in my life. Um, I'm a very positive person. So a lot of mine has been more so anxiety, but I have been stuck in that depression before too. Um, But I think really just being self-aware and knowing that I'm doing really good right now. Yeah, I am on that mountain, but there is someone that's in that valley. Yeah. And I need to be able to extend a hand and say, hey, I know what it's like down here. And how can I help you get back to the top of this mountain. Right. So self awareness is so important and really just being able to be vulnerable, you right. know, and honest is going to be really important too. the, the moment I started being honest you know, is when life started getting better because I was so afraid for so long. Well, what if so-and-so thinks this? Well, what if such and such, they're going to think I'm crazy, right? That's the the word everybody (laughs) uses. I think I'm crazy. And it scares a lot of people. I mean, even, you know, when I talk to people about NAMI sometimes and I say what we do and they're like, oh, well, we need to send Tom over there to you. And, you know, I'm thinking to myself, "You're, you're saying that as a joke, you know, you're saying like, oh, well, Tom's crazy. He needs to come to NAMI. And so I usually just say, you know, Well, we're opening and accepting to everyone. You know, there are a lot of people who experience, you know, mental health concerns, and I just kind of flip it. Um, But yeah, really just being able to be honest and have those conversations. And I'll tell you what, I work with so many people and I meet so many people someday, like some days who are not ready to have that conversation yet. They're not capable of having that. And and they have to do it in their own time. But the moment that I started self-care and taking care of myself and being honest is whenever I became more self-aware.
0: And I feel like, you know, uh, like you mentioned with the provider, actually being able to listen to you is incredibly important. When I first uh, booked my appointment um, with my doctor, you know, on the application, they asked about mental health stuff and it kind of threw me off because I'm like, I don't remember that ever being in any doctor's office that I've ever uh, experienced. And when she finally came in and she was going over the application, everything that I wrote down, um... She's like, you wrote here that you're struggling with your mental health. And then she asked me like questions, uh, you know, are you seeing a therapist or anything like that? And it's, it's great to see that there's people taking those steps into, oh, well, maybe this person does need help and we're not going to jump right to medication like you said. And it's so hard to be vulnerable about mental health struggles, especially when it comes to uh, what you're dealing with internally. Because not a lot of people try to understand what you're going through. so,
1: And it's a journey, you know, they they say the mental health journey. It really is a journey because it took me seven years just to find the right combination of therapy medication what works for me and so many times people get so frustrated along the way that they're like well you know i'm not going to be medicated or you know i i know i have this side effect but i'm going to take this medication to you know make this side effect go away you know when there could be a whole medication altogether that doesn't have that side effect you know but then that means going back to the doctor getting on new medication and it's it can be challenging yeah but whenever you find that right combination of what works for you that's you know, and you have to get there, you know, as frustrating it is, you have to find out because when you get there, life is so much more worth living.
0: Right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, it's, it's good to see that there's doctors out there that are willing to take those steps with people. Cause it's, it's really hard to really hard to find that in today's society, especially with uh, you know people making assumptions every single day and when somebody walks in oh well this person looks like they're depressed so they must be depressed or yeah. they don't they don't think of maybe they're having a bad day you know it's always jump yeah. to rate right to depression or rate right to whatever stigma that there is on around mental health so um, yeah. it's definitely. And-
1: And unfortunately, doctors and nurses, you know, they go to school to learn about how to heal the body. They don't learn enough about the mind. So it it really just comes down to a lack of understanding. Mm
0: -hmm. And a lot
1: of times, you know, with, you know, the lack of services and lack of places for individuals with mental health concerns to go, they end up in our hospitals and ERs. Wow. And when they're there, you know, you have a nurse who, you know, is, is probably overwhelmed, right? She's probably tired. She, it might be night shift that she's working. And, and she's got a gentleman over here with a heart attack. Who's coding. And you've got a uh, little Timmy over here who, you know, fell off his bike and, and needs stitches in his head. And now you're here because you're depressed. Really? Oh, and you're going to kill yourself. Okay. Right. And they, and you get that attitude. And then this person came to the hospital for help
0: Yeah.
1: and, and really it's just, they don't have enough training to understand it or to know how to respond, or even to recognize that this here is a part of our body, Right. you know, physical and mental health play a huge role. And this can be sick just like any other, you know, any other place in the body. And so I, you know, mental health first aid training or de-escalation training, that's really where I want to go to from here. You know, I love training law enforcement, but if you Google de-escalation or de-escalation books on Amazon, the first 10 books that are going to come up are all going to be related to law enforcement. Mm -hmm. But what about our public transit workers who deal with people who, you know, need help getting to appointments who may go into crisis? What about those nurses? What about the teachers who's work, who are working with those students who, you know, need de-escalation? What about um, pastors or chaplains or people who work with, with, you know, people come to them all the time who are struggling. What are the things that I say or do? So I, I've made some way with getting this book to, to pastors and, and things like that too. So, you know, the more that I learn and, and the more that I, I get out there and I kind of talk about this stuff, the more that I'm like, everyone needs to know these skills. This needs to be common knowledge.
0: Absolutely. Um, Anxiety seems to be a big struggle when someone is in crisis. Uh, you touched a little on things like social anxiety and how one could approach someone with anxiety during a crisis. Um, do you think one specific tool could work for all or do you feel like it's always circumstantial?
1: Um, I, so when we say anxiety, I feel, some, I feel a lot of times when we say anxiety and, and people don't know enough about it, they automatically think like a panic attack.
0: Right, so you know? right.
1: Right. And there's so many different types of anxiety. Right. So I think it really has to do with response. You know, obviously, if you're having a panic attack and one of the things we try to avoid is, you know, calm down, just calm down, calm down, calm down, you know, or or relax, just relax, 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 (laughs) relax. relax, relax. You know, and you say that so many times and, and the person isn't calming down or the person isn't relaxing. And so, you know, if I see that you're having a panic attack, you know, you're okay. Take a deep breath let's breathe together, breathe with me. Do you want to have a seat? All right. I, I love getting people to sit down. You know, when you talk about de-escalation and bringing it down, having it sitting down actually brings things down. Right. And then, you know, this person's breathing with me and then keeping a low tone, you know, you're going to be okay. You're going to get through this is really what it's all about. Now, social anxiety, um, generalized anxiety, some of these other anxiety disorders are going to look a little bit different with social anxiety disorder. Um, you know, I know for me, uh, if I was going to socialize with people, it it had to involve drinking <laughs> because <laughs> I need, I needed to, you know, kind of just uh, feel, so feel yeah. like, yeah, not, not feel so uptight or, or kind of get out of my head where I'm like, oh, well, how well, they, I said this, so how are yeah. they going to take that? You know, um, when a lot of times when you're drinking, you actually say a lot of stupider stuff, but <laughs> you do see a lot of, you know, substance use with, um, anxiety disorders, right. um, and, and then generalized anxiety. I mean, that's that's my diagnosis. It's really just worrying about everything all the time, and you know, I just had to kind of. I think with anxiety, it's really that, that positive mindset is so important too, Absolutely. because the the moment that I notice that I'm feeling stressed or I'm I'm feeling upset about something, obviously those that anxiety is gonna you know come to the forefront.
0: And then I, that kind of comes with like the the self awareness of what your body's starting to feel.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And when I and and then immediately going into that self-care, you know, or or having like an action plan, like when I start feeling like this, I need to do this. I'm going to get a cold drink of water. I'm going to walk around my backyard. I'm going to put my feet in the grass. I'm going to listen to the birds for a minute. I'm going to go take a bubble bath. You know what I mean? When you start realizing those triggers are setting you off, you need that self-care even more.
0: Yeah. And
1: then when self-care doesn't work or if it doesn't work, Okay, well, that's when it's time to make an appointment with your provider. And that's okay. It's okay if self care isn't working and you need to go to your doctor and say, Hey, I'm experiencing this. Can I? I've been on medications many times throughout my life, you know, and there's been times where I'm feeling good and I can go off of them for a while. That's not to say that there's something situational that might come up that I'm like, you know what? I need to get back on medication again. So it's really different for the person. There are some people who are going to need to stay on medications you know, long-term in order to, you know, do well. So it really, again, it's just so individualized, uh, but self-care, I can't, I can't preach that enough. Yeah.
0: Um, For me, I I always feel like once people are kind of like at that point where nothing's working and they kind of, you know, go right to giving up and it's just like, uh, yeah, I don't want to go to the doctors because they're just going to do this or they're just going to give me that. And like you said, sometimes you just need to go to the doctor just to see what you can change about, you know, your diet or your lifestyle or whatever it is. And like you said, self-care is, you know, super important. And it's, it's funny. That's probably one of the buzzwords every podcast I've used so far is self-care. I can't preach that enough either, because it's so important to take care of yourself, not only physically, but mentally. And I feel like if you don't have, little bit of both it's it's tough because a lot of people you know those gym heavy people were like oh well i'm going through this so i'm just gonna you know go pump some weights and here and there but they fail to try and understand that if you're struggling with anxiety or you're struggling with depression it's not as easy as just going out the door and going to the gym and you're gonna feel better like some people will stay in bed for three days and they can't help that and there's always that lack of understanding, I, I always feel like, when it comes to people having anxiety.
1: And I think sometimes it's a lack of options. You know, when people are in crisis or, or they're stressed, you know, sometimes they can't see those options. And that's why it's so important as somebody coming in to help or de-escalate to lay it out for them. Like, this is what we can do right now. Right. Um, and, and when we think about something, you know, like people questioning the value of their life and suicide, you know, is it really that far-fetched? I mean, I, I, I've never been suicidal to the point where I've thought of a plan and like, this is what I want to do. But I've been in at points of my life where I'm like, what is my purpose? What is, what is my meaning? Why am I even here? You know what I mean? So I feel like everybody goes through that at some point in their life. And when you're faced with that question, You weigh your options. And for some people, when they start asking themselves, you know, okay, here's my dilemma, what am I going to do? You know, I don't like my job, I can get a new job, I can, uh, I can go back to school. And if you're in that negative mindset, well, I probably won't be able to get another job. I don't make a whole lot of money anyway. I can't go to school. I'm not smart enough. I can't afford school. You know, I might just, I should probably just kill myself. I mean, honestly, they're, they're weighing their options. And when none of those other options seem realistic, suicide can become an option. And truly suicide, we are all, you know, one traumatic event away from potentially being suicidal ourselves. And we've all been affected by suicide and with how prevalent it is in our society, you know, we're, we're, we're all affected by it. And because we know people who've died by suicide, it actually puts us at an increased risk of suicide because we know people who've died by suicide um i'm kind of getting off on a tangent here but um there's a really great study, University of Kentucky, by a woman uh, named Julie Cyril, and she said that of, a, of uh, one suicide death, there are going to be 135 people who are going to be affected by one death by suicide. Now, there are going to be some folks who, you know, maybe these were co-workers, maybe they were acquaintances, didn't really know the person, but because that person died by suicide, it is going to mess them up for a while. You right. know, maybe my office was next to this guy's, and now I'm going to go to go to work for the next month seeing that empty desk until they can get his position you know a a new person in there you know um but there are going to be 11 of those 135 individuals who are going to have devastating effects on their life who that one step by suicide is going to affect them throughout their entire life so who are those 11 people they're going to be who was closest to the individual parents children brothers sisters you know best friends Um, so that's why it's so important that we address mental health and that we start to make people feel okay about saying I'm not okay. And even to the point where I'm feeling suicidal, um, because if we can't have those conversations, people are going to continue to hide it in shame and people are going to continue to die. And that is going to affect all of us.
0: Yeah. And and like you said, the, the lack of options for some people is, is super, I, I, that's gigantic and something that, you know, I know in the back of my head you know, what you said about the lack of options is, you know, why that happens. And a lot of people don't try to understand that these people don't have those options that people are suggesting. And suicide has been something that has affected me in my life. And, you know, not to not to make anything about myself, but you know, I'm a a survivor, you know, and I did this movement, I did the podcast and everything, and it's going well, you know, it's, it's good to put yourself out there and it's good to let everybody know that they're not alone. And I feel like in terms of, you know, de-escalation or mental health or, you know, suicidal uh, individuals, it's important to preach that message that you're not alone and it's okay to feel the way that you're feeling, but just know that there are options for you to be okay again. And thank you so much for touching on, on uh, suicide. Cause I, I feel like it's, it's such a taboo subject
1: and it it's is. such a
0: hard conversation to have. So yeah. I agree. But, with but,
1: but even just thinking about, you know, someone like you who has that story, who yeah. can lay it all out there, like, yes, this happened to me. This, this was my struggle. This is how I got through it. You give a safe space for someone else who's struggling to say, Chris went through this. I can go to him because you were honest about it. And they may know five other people, who've experienced, who, who have tried to complete suicide or attempted or, right? But they're not talking about it. You know, they're keeping it quiet. They're hiding in shame. But when they, when, when someone is feeling suicidal and they know that there are people who've been through that, who are talking about it, that makes it a little less taboo. That makes it okay to reach out and say, hey, Chris, you know what? I've been struggling. I know you were here. You know, you, you make people feel safe by having these conversations because these are real feelings, you know, this is what people, you know, and and people who say they've never experienced this stuff are completely full of it. In my opinion, no life, life is not perfect for anyone, no matter how, you know, perfect it may seem, we're always going to be struggling with things and we need to know that it is okay not to be okay and find those people who are going to, and I know you mentioned family, you know, same way I have, I have people in my family who, who really understand. And then I have people who, you know, aren't going to be so sensitive or kind of like, you know, I don't understand that stuff. Right. (laughs) So it's really just about finding your people and finding your tribe. And, and that's, that's how we support each other. That's how we lift each other up and hopefully prevent suicide from happening.
0: Absolutely. Um, like I said, I, I, greatly appreciate you bringing up that conversation. Um, Very taboo subject. Um, I love the topic that you brought up about personal space uh, with the autistic young man and mentioned the autism uh, society. Do you work with any special needs communities?
1: Um, no, I wouldn't say necessarily with the de-escalation but we do um, go out on-site visits during crisis intervention training we do we go to the autism Society they have a psychosocial rehab um, very close to the community college that we work at it is absolutely phenomenal absolutely phenomenal the work that they're doing there' you know helping them socialize you know um, they, they learn in a different way you know what I mean people think that people that individuals with autism um, you know, are not intelligent, and that's not the case. You know, many of these folks are highly intelligent. They just learn a different way. Yeah. So they work with all of these individuals to, you know, to help them with these skills. I, there, there was actually one individual too. If you, if you know about autism, sometimes you have um, people who who do self injurious behavior. Um, there was a, a a young man in. in that I had met there, who was was banging his head, and and he had a tendency to go to you know like brick walls and start banging his head. So you think about traumatic brain injuries. You think about something else that could happen as a result of that. Um, they actually worked with him. They they had a, a room with some uh, padding on the wall and a pillow on the wall. So whenever he was stressed, and it was a, it was when he was triggered, it was when something happened and he was really upset. He didn't have the words to communicate how he was feeling. So he would react with self-injurious behavior. But the fact that then he was able to go and use a pillow as opposed to a wall, you know what I mean? That, that helped him, you know, not, not get injured or hurt. So really just the little things that they put in place to, to help individuals live better lives is, is really phenomenal
0: that's incredible. I, that's, that's really, uh, interesting, (laughs) excuse me. Um, that's really interesting to, uh, to know that they have, uh, a little, a center like that to help them communicate with, um, you know, all the things that they're going through that they can't exactly express like you or I could. And I, have you ever worked with anybody, um, in a crisis that had, you know, the mental challenges, like the mental health challenges? Um, yeah.
1: Um, I would say as far as far as intellectual and developmental disabilities go. Yeah. Um, I would say, and especially if we're talking autism specifically, yeah. um, individuals, a lot of times you, you need to find a special interest.
0: Okay.
1: Um, if you can find a special interest, because I, I know of an individual, his special interest is washer and dryers washer and dryers so if he's you know if he's in a crisis if he's worked up all you gotta say is hey um tell me about your washer and dryer and he immediately that's his thing oh i have a maytag what kind do you have kenmore do you have a matching set why don't you have a matching set you (laughs) know but but that immediately is talking about something that they love um you know trains um paw patrol. I've talked about so many different things. Just finding that one thing builds that trust. And a lot of times that rapport, yeah. and then you're better able to kind of intervene and get them the help that they need.
0: So, so essentially it's kind of like finding common ground just to see what finding you-
1: common ground. Yeah. Yep. I like
0: that.
1: Yep. And we also, you know, also being um, careful with your language again, too. Right. Um, depending on who I'm talking about, if I say, well, you know, I can't think of it off the top of my head. You know, someone with autism might be like off the top, like they don't, you know, it's kind of beyond their understanding or or it's raining cats and dogs outside, you know, they take things like that very literal. Uh, And they might giggle like, oh, she said it's raining cats and dogs thinking I literally mean that it's raining cats and dogs when I really mean it's raining very heavy, right? Um, So again, just the way they communicate can sometimes be a little bit different. And then always keeping in mind that, you know, folks may be nonverbal, they may use sign language, they may be able to, you know, if you give them a pad and a piece of paper, they might be able to write down their address. That's something else to keep in mind with folks with autism too, is that a lot of times they can wonder Yeah. Um, If they wander, two places to look, water, bodies of water, they are attracted to bodies of water. And we have seen a lot of, uh, I mean, I should say young people, but individuals with autism of all ages who can't swim, who are attracted to water, who end up drowning. Um, And I cannot tell you how many, at least two cases that I can think of, of an individual with autism who was attracted to train tracks, who do not think that trains are dangerous. And unfortunately they get injured and killed. Wow. So train tracks and bodies of water are two places to, if you, if you are searching for someone with autism to go to, because that typically seems to be where they wander.
0: That's a, I didn't even know that was a thing. That's crazy. I couldn't even, wow. That's something. Yeah. Um, Thank you for that. Uh, it's very, very informational. One of my best friends, uh, uh, they deal with autism and, uh, he it's, it's a struggle to try and communicate with him sometimes of what you're going through. Cause he doesn't a hundred percent understand, um, you know, conversations that we have. So you kind of got to like, like, like you said, language matters. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's super important to, uh, to try and talk to him in the style that he can process and be able to communicate back with you. So, it's good to know that there's resources out, out there for, for them to uh, to seek or for their family members to give to them in order to deal with whatever struggles they're going through.
1: Yeah. And and also, you know, behavior and sensory responses are sometimes a little bit different. They may have an incredibly high pain tolerance. Hmm. Um, I know of an individual who um, whose little boy came in from out in the yard playing and uh, had a, just a, a little bite on his arm, you know, and she's like, oh, just a little bug bite, mosquito bite. Let's put some, you know, something on it, send him to bed. Woke up the next morning. This child's arm was black from the shoulder down. He'd been bitten by a copperhead. Oh. Now he, he had, he obviously didn't realize that it was dangerous. He had tried to actually, what we later found out, pick the copperhead up because he doesn't know, you know, the danger in that right. he got bit. It didn't hurt. So he wasn't able to communicate that something bad had happened or that he had been Um, been bit by that snake. So they can have incredibly high pain tolerance. And I tell that to law enforcement too, because if for some reason you do have to put your hands on an individual with autism, it's very easy to break bones, dislocate shoulders, things of that nature, because they have such a high pain tolerance and they will not even realize that they're injured. Wow. Um, So and and I would say to anybody who wants more information about this, definitely contact your local um, autism society. They have organizations all across the country and they will come and do trainings like this for you and kind of let you know a little bit more of what it looks like and how to communicate with individuals like
0: this. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Um, So you have the abbreviation uh, B-I-F-F or BIF for short, uh, which stands for Brief, Informative, Friendly and Firm thought this was such a useful piece of information because I know myself uh, and many others struggle with narcissistic people in their life. Do you feel like they are the toughest to help in time of crisis?
1: Yeah. Well, I think sometimes we, we confuse like narcissistic qualities and narcissistic personality disorder. Um, but I will say that with narcissism, with um, borderline personality disorder, um, uh, Histrionic personality disorder, um, really just personality disorders in general. The common theme across the board is that lack of empathy. Um, a lot of times, those individuals, it's it's about them, you know. And 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 I feel like, and you may be the same way, you know. I feel like I'm I'm very emotionally intelligent. I'm very sensitive. Um, so so you know, feeling other people's feel. I mean, that's really a gift. It truly is a gift. Um, some people really cannot see things from another person's perspective right um you know we, we say all the time "Well, will just try taking a walk in their shoes and you kind of can get into that headspace of okay well yeah if i was going through this if i was this person doing that you know and there are some people who actually struggle with that yeah. with seeing the world from another person's perspective they can only see things from their perspective so i would say that's probably what makes um narcissists and and individuals with with kind of some of those diagnoses more difficult to work with is the fact that they lack empathy and they lack sometimes that insight to know that you know they they don't typically go they, they may have mental health struggles themselves you know especially if it's a, if, if it's a personality disorder you know they may be feeling depression and anxiety as a result of that um but actually having people like that go to the doctor and get help a lot of times it's challenging because, Oh no, no, it's not me. It's not me. It's everybody else. (laughs) Right. That, that lack of insight is, uh, is, can be a barrier to getting help themselves.
0: I also feel like, uh, you know, when they're in that time of crisis and, you know, say like it's a domestic uh, crisis and I feel like, Oh, they, they tell their side of the story and nothing, you know, nothing else the information that they, that they need to give out. They just, Oh, well, so-and-so did this to me and that's it. Like they just unprovoked, yeah. they attacked me kind of thing. And I- I've seen it with kids that deal with narcissistic parents. I myself, uh, same situation. And growing up, it was hard to tell thing- uh, other people what was going on in my household because my parents were like, oh, that never happened. Or, you know, they would <laughs> gaslight you
1: mm-hmm. and
0: make you believe that everything you were saying never happened, that it was a right. lie. So- I feel like if they're in a crisis situation and you're dealing with them on the the hotline or the text line, it's hard to, it's hard to move past the fact that they might be only giving you pieces of information that they want you to hear. Um, I, I always, I feel like that's super tricky for, for a therapist to deal with a narcissistic person too, just because. well,
1: And, and that's what, that, that's kind of the goal, you know, in de-escalation when you, after you've kind of built rapport and empathize and listen, the goal is to. Um, you know, get this person to the help that they need. So, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of times that's coming up with a win-win, you know, yeah. I touched on that in the book is, you know, what does this person want and what do I want?
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: um, I need this person to get help. Um, this person is telling me that they have an eight in two days and they really want a sandwich. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what, um, let's compromise here. That's what it's about, right? How about we go over to that McDonald's over there? I'll get you a Big Mac. We'll sit and hang out. I'll call mobile crisis. They can be here in about two hours and um, and we can get you some help. They can talk to you, right? So that person is getting something that they want. They're getting a meal. They're getting something to eat. And I'm getting something that I want because this person is then going to accept the help that I need. Yeah. Now, if you, again, lack that empathy or you're a narcissist, you're you're not going to easily want to compromise or come to a win-win right when that's really the common goal sometimes we have to give a little something up to gain something
0: (laughs) right yeah absolutely and I feel like that's super super tough when you're talking about a a narcissistic person too because it's the compromise is always in their favor (laughs) you know it's kind of like what they want and you know the win-win thing like you say is super important but it's also hard to uh, feel accomplished with a narcissistic person because you feel like am I helping this person or am I enabling their behavior kind of thing? Yeah. You know?
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so self-care is one important thing I try to bring up in every podcast. As we spoke on earlier, you touched on it in a, such a helpful way. And I had no idea um, these breathing methods existed and the abbreviation meds, which is meditation, exercise, diet, and sleep. Do you practice any of the mentioned self-care? Uh,
1: I do. I do everything pretty good except for meditation. Right. Um, I, meditation is one of those things that. Um, if it's something that you, you have to meditate the same way that you would like go to the gym, right? If I was like, Hey, Chris, go run two miles, you might not be able to do that. But if I give you two weeks, you know, you'll start out, maybe you'll run a quarter mile, and then a half mile, and you kind of build up to it. It's really the same with meditation, it takes time. Um, there are a lot of thoughts coming in, especially for someone like me, you know, who, who has anxiety, you have a lot of thoughts coming in. So you have to actually sit, you know, quietly and and try to consciously push those out and it takes work you know and and maybe I sit down and it's hard and I do you know just five minutes and I'm just going to do five minutes every day in the morning for a week and then you know next week maybe I'll work my way up to 10 minutes and 15 minutes but the more there and there's so much good research on meditation and how it benefits the body i mean we see monks living over in in other countries who are living to like 120 130 years old and you're like what how is someone living that long and i mean it's it's lifestyle they are they live by that meds you know they'd use that meditation they're they're eating um you know, a lot of things that, that the monks say is, is, is touching your food, right? They, they like, they say, don't play with your food, but the monks are like, play with your food, touch it, experience <laughs> it. Like this is, this is a, a life experience, what you're about to eat and, and you're, what you're about to put in your body is going to become a part of you. And, and so, yeah, it's, it's all important. It's also important exercising, getting outside, even if it's just for a 30 minute walk in nature. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't have to be grueling, but if, if you just do one thing every day, and especially if you are struggling and maybe you've dealt with depression and been in bed for a few days, you know, even if you can just get yourself to go and sit out on the porch, you know, in the sunshine, maybe sit in the rocking chair for a couple minutes, you know what I mean? And working up to it. Um, But that's really important too. And then sleep. We've already talked, you know, a lot about that too. So Um, sleep is incredibly important. And a lot of times, you know, the signs of those mental health crises occurring can be because we're just not sleeping enough. And we really need that rested sleep to be able to, to function and be well throughout the day.
0: Yeah. Um, I feel like the most challenging one out of the four mentions, like you said, meditation, because I, myself, I've tried meditation. (laughs) I can't sit still, or my brain just doesn't ever be quiet. And I kind of put that with, uh, with sleep as well because you know when you have that anxiety it's just like oh well what color was that jacket yesterday and, and you know your brain just comes yeah. up with different scenarios right it's so hard to practice uh just all four of these because I feel like they kind of all run into that like rabbit hole of, of of all the struggles you have in your life like uh like exercise obviously very beneficial it helps you uh you know become better physically and you know mentally it's been proven that uh exercise can help you mentally too but when you have like that trigger and people people like to make a joke about the word triggers obviously as you know Mm -hmm. but um triggers are something that so many people underestimate because you don't know how hard that can hit one person yeah and if especially an unaware person like you said self-awareness humongous in, in mental health, but when you're going through, uh, you know, trying to better yourself and then that one trigger that you're not prepared for happens, it's like, oh, well, there goes the diet, there goes the exercise,
1: yeah, there goes the
0: sleep. And yeah. it's such a, you know, revolving door that just doesn't stop for a lot of people. And definitely feel like it's a message. A lot of people need to, need to hear that, you know, not everybody's going to deal with, uh, struggles the same way that you deal with them.
1: Yeah. And it, it's all connected. And, and I would like to add, too, um, there are so many different meditation apps out there, too, and um, some of them are pretty pricey. The best one that I found that I recommend to all of my students is um, Insight Timer. Insight Timer is really good. It's free. You can always sign up for courses and things like that, but you can actually go up there and just select like a five-minute meditation, a 10-minute meditation, however time, much time you have for that day, and it kind of narrows it down and, and it's, it's free. So definitely take advantage of that if you're interested in, in trying to meditate, but it does, it's something you have to make. It's something you have to make a habit, just like, you know, exercising and diet, but yeah, insight timer, you can find it in your app store, play store, but it's absolutely free um, unless you do want to obviously pay more for courses, but that all those meditations up there are really important. So that when I do meditate, when I am squeezing it in, that's (laughs) what I'm using.
0: Nice. Um, so hope for me was always something I held close to my heart before I was able to, uh, help my, or to get myself the help I needed. And one, one term you mentioned sticks out to me tremendously, and that's self-actualization, uh, which is, you know, realizing one's potential for those that struggle, um, how would you go about helping someone find, find this for themselves, the self-actualization?
1: Yeah. So, you know, and, and if, if, you haven't seen this before, anybody you know listening hasn't seen this before, definitely go ahead and Google Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, and it kind of brings up this, this pyramid. And at the bottom of that pyramid, the, the goal is we all start at the bottom, right? And we all want to work our way up. So we have just like our basic needs, right? Food, clothing, shelter. And with that, hopefully, we can move to the next step of feeling safe and feeling secure. When we feel safe and secure, we feel loved and we can move up to that next level of feeling like we belong and feeling loved. And the goal is to go all the way up to that top of that chart, which is self actualization. Now, if we're talking about trauma, right? If we're talking about individuals who maybe didn't have a house a roof over their head like some of those basic needs were not met it's going to be really hard and sometimes more difficult to work your way up that triangle because if you don't have those basic needs are you going to have confidence are you going to have a, a you know a good self-esteem so uh, and, and i that, that term self-actualization actually means like realizing your potential right um and it, we I like to think that, you know, that that's my goal in life is I want to be self-actualized. Um, but there are unfortunately a lot of people who will most likely never make it to that point in their lives. Um, it takes a lot of soul searching. It takes a lot of insight. It takes a lot of vulnerability to be able to get to that point. Um, but I, I, I love that Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I learned that in, um, in high school, actually. And uh, I'll never forget, we were in class. And Mrs. Von Kauser, who's my favorite teacher, I always talk about her, too. we were learning about this and she said, you know, and I really think that, you know, Tiffany is a really good example of self-actualization. And I was a teenager and this is just so like of of how I am now, you know, I didn't really know what that meant at the time. Now I know I've always been like a 50 year old woman in a child's body. Like (laughs) I'm just, I'm just, I'm just an old soul. You know what I mean? And, um, just again, just that ability to empathize, that ability, that, that want to understand, you know, is all really important. So, Um, you know, I think working your way up, up this chart, you know, if, if you, if you can look at it and you can say, you know, I don't feel like I have love and belonging in my life. Well, that, that should be a goal for you because once you kind of met that goal, you move up to the self esteem and then you can be that self actual actualized person, actually kind of recognizing your purpose and living that.
0: Right. Um, I had added that, uh, book to my, my reading list. I definitely want to, uh, check that out because I, I feel like, it's an interesting perspective on, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, what we as humans require and, you know, just trying to get to that, that top level of the chart, like you said, and a lot of people just, you know, struggle with just the self-esteem part. And that's probably one of the biggest parts. And of course, love and belonging uh, in today's society is so hard because either you feel like an outcast or, you know, you go through your life alone and, Just don't know where you belong. And I feel like the most important one for me, well, not most important because I feel like they're all important, but one that sticks out to me is safety. And Mm -hmm. a lot of people I feel like struggle with that aspect because either, you know, they move around a lot, Uh, you know, they don't have the resources to help them overcome whatever demons they're struggling with. And Mm -hmm. it's so hard for them to even think about the love and belonging part because they don't feel safe with their environment or who they are as a person and I kind of feel like that's where a lot of people just kind of stand still at forever just trying to find a safe space for them yeah so. it's
1: it's so important I, I work a lot with the LGBTQ community I um, help organize our pride in mm-hmm. our in my town here in Greenville North Carolina every every year um, and, and really that's what it's all about is you know LGBTQ, they have such a high rate of suicide. Right. And when, when we, when NAMI first started sponsoring this, you know, I did get some, some reaction like, well, why is a mental health agency sponsoring LGBTQ? Do they think that we're crazy? I'm like, wait, 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 wait. that's not what it's about at all. It's because we know that a lot of times you don't feel accepted by society. Yeah. You know, we want to be able to bring this community together and say, you know, we are accepting of you and you are loved here and you belong here just like everyone else. Absolutely. I also have a friend who worked with um students against destructive decisions. It's like an after-school program with a lot of students. And just like what you were talking about with belonging, there were a group of students who didn't play sports. They weren't in any clubs. You know, they really didn't know where they fit in. And they just kind of started a club, like they named it something silly. And basically everyone who didn't have a, any any clubs or, or organizations or sports that they felt like they belonged to or fit into, they all joined this club. And really just that sense of belonging and being a part of something was such a confidence builder was, you know, really help with their self-esteem and knowing that, you know, they were being surrounded by these other people who, you know, were a lot like them and they felt accepted and seen.
0: Right. Um, In my last podcast, I kind of talked about how we've grown as a community in terms of, you know, resources and in terms of just trying to get out the word that, you know, mental health is something that society has swept under the rug for so long. And it's great to hear that, that kids are, are taking upon themselves to create groups like that because that's something we didn't have you know yeah. growing up in the 90s and early 2000s was rough
1: yeah and and you know we, we we give this we give the kids now like so much you know lack for for being sensitive right mm-hmm. or uh, but they're going to change the world they yeah. really I, I really and, and it's so funny like and 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 I, I really believe that you know when I was uh it, it, when I was a kid in the 90s, and early 2000s, I remember seeing all of these issues and being like, oh, I can't wait till I'm a, an adult and we don't have, you know, we have world peace and none of this stuff <laughs> exists anymore. Uh, but it's always going to be there. And I really just think that the, the mentality of, of these younger people today and, and everything that they're being bringing to the table and saying, look, we do have to talk. We do have to be vulnerable. We have to listen. We do have to worry about words and feelings because they matter. You know, that's what it's all about. So I'm, I'm really excited to, to see just how we again, break this stigma, just going forward in the next 10, 20 years, I think we're going to, I think we're going to change the world.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, one of my favorite uh, sayings uh, that I've heard recently was, let's create a better world for our children. That way, when they're all grown up, and they're all adults, that we won't have that stigma around mental health anymore, that we'll all be more self aware for the future. And, you know, the future of this generation. And it's, you know, it's good to see that we've grown, but you know, we've only just scraped. The tip of that iceberg yeah, yeah. with mental health and yeah uh, you know having somebody like yourself preach that preach that word every day and then having uh, our mental health group on facebook and and this podcast you know it's it's a great step and it's great to see so many people uh step forward and speak out for the people that are afraid to speak out because i know there's so many so many listening for that matter that are scared to speak up that are scared to even share their story but i just you know i want to echo that message that you know it's okay to be feeling the way that you're okay and it's okay that you're struggling with what you're struggling with but we will get through this together yeah and And, uh, and
1: hope is hard hope can be hard to find but really we need to cling to hope absolutely cling to hope
0: um so before we close out today's session um where can people find you on social media and where can people find your book
1: Yeah, so I am on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Simply Deescalate. I share a lot of mental health resources and tips up there too. Um, I also have a website, tiffanyherring.com. You can go up there and be linked to the book. The book is on Amazon. Um, And then also just feel free to shoot me a message up there if you're interested in any type of speaking events or consulting, I would love to work with you and your organization. So uh, tiffanyherring.com and that's Tiffany, T-I-F-F-A-N-I-E h-e-r-r-i-n-g my mom my mom made me a little different she didn't want <sighs> tiffany with a y so tiffany with an i-e herring uh, dot com and you'll be linked to my book and anything and every other resource that you could imagine um, if you follow my socials
0: can you hold up that beautiful book for our, our listeners yes your-
1: here you go and my and there's uh did you like the pictures, Chris? I loved it. They're great. So, so there are pictures all throughout. And you can see I colored mine. So kind of oh, some, nice. self, some self-care there. You can hold on. I got to show you my elephant here. Look at him. This is the active listening chapter. I love it. <laughs> but Good yeah, job. thank you. Thank you so much for having me today. I really appreciate you the opportunity to be here. A
0: million times over for doing this. And before we close out, I like to read a quote that I find on social media just to read to our viewers This one didn't have an author on it, but I I loved how it was worded. Um, So it goes, don't break a bird's wings and tell it how to fly. Don't break a heart and then tell it to love. Don't break a soul and then tell it to be happy. Don't see the worst in a person and expect them to see the best in you. Don't judge people and expect them to stand by your side. Don't play with fire and expect to stay perfectly safe. Life is about giving and taking. You cannot expect to give bad and receive good. And you cannot expect to give good and receive bad.
1: Mm, Powerful.
0: I love it. Um, No
1: judgment, just love.
0: Exactly. Um, (laughs) Thank you guys so much for listening. And again, this is Tiffany Herring. I'm Chris. Make sure that you follow the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and uh, follow our Facebook group at Mental Health Movement. Thank you guys so much. Be gentle with yourselves and much love to you guys.